You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is Brian McClanahan, and this is uh, episode 27, and it covers the week of May 16 through 20, 2016. So we're glad to be back, glad to have you back on the program. Uh, housekeeping again. We've got our summer school coming up June 12th through 17, 2016. I don't know if there's really any spaces left, but uh, if you'd like to contact Dr. Livingston, please do so. If you're interested in attending, there is information available on our website, but that's less than a month away. And uh, the topic is the Southern tradition and the renewal of America and what the South can offer uh, the future. I mean, this is something that, that we talk about at the Institute here, you know, goes back to someone like Richard Weaver, who says, look, and I'm paraphrasing, we don't necessarily want to live in the Old South, but the Old South and, and the Southern tradition can teach you how to live in many respects. So uh, think about that if you can go. Uh, it be a great time for you. It's, it's an event unlike anything else we do, because it's not just a lecture series of lectures. It is a time for fellowship and conversation with like-minded people. So it's, it's well worth it. And then we have a new event coming up. We've mentioned it before on this podcast last week, but we have a new event. And it is in August, August 13th, 2016 in Atlanta, Georgia. The topic is nullification. Uh, and we have a lot of great speakers lined up for that. So we'd like to see you out for that. It is um, uh, a one-day event, Saturday, August 13th, <clears throat> 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. includes lunch and your fee for the uh, for the conference fee, and uh, right now we have six speakers lined up for that, uh, many of which are, um, or I say many of whom, are attorneys or uh, one judge. So it's uh, it's going to be a good time. Uh, we're going to talk about how nullification is a, a remedy for the unconstitutional actions of the federal government today, and how this uh, Jeffersonian idea is still current, and how it can be used. And so we'd like to see you come out for that. I think uh, that will also be a very good time. Again, fellowship, you are going to see some like-minded people there. It's only a one-day conference, so it's not a whole lot of time out of your day or out of your schedule, just one day, uh, five hours, essentially. So uh, we'd, we'd love to see you come out for that. All right, and also remember that if, um, if you are listening to this podcast, if you do get our email, our weekly email, that's great. But also, please remember that um, we exist on your generous contributions. Uh, so just because you get the email doesn't necessarily mean you're a member. Become a member of the Institute. Uh, you know, for as little as, um, you know, a little over four bucks a month, you can be a member of the Institute and help us keep this podcast going, help us keep the website up and running, help us put together conferences. We've got some other things we're trying to do. And all of those things, of course, take money. And so we'd, we'd love to have your support, and uh, whatever you can give us would be great. Um, and so please consider that if you go to our webpage and click on the tab at the top that says uh, support, and then drop down, it'll say memberships, and you have uh, memberships for individuals. We also have options to give stock and other things. So um, please consider donating to the Abbeville Institute. Okay, <clears throat> well, let's talk about this week. And some of the things we, we had on the uh, website wasn't really a theme this week, 
Uh, it's very eclectic. Of course, uh, always we're talking about the Southern tradition or the Jeffersonian tradition, and, which is what we focus on most, uh, more than anything else. And so the first particular piece was by our resident, uh, our resident uh, Minnesota historian, Dave Benner. But uh, Dave Benner loves the South, and uh, he wrote a very good little concise history of the Hampton Roads Conference. And he titled it A Twist in the Lincoln Myth. And I think this is also important. And a lot of times people talk about the lost cause myth, but the real lost cause myth in American history is this Lincoln myth, not the Southern position and what they said uh, they were fighting for, particularly after the war. They didn't fabricate something to try to make their cause seem better. Um, they weren't really concerned about that. In fact, you know, even after the war was over, uh, people still talked about slavery, and uh, it wasn't. Uh, it was a it was a dirty word for some, but uh, Southerners um, who had been participating in that particular labor and economic institution um, didn't feel bad about it. Uh, but they did point out that look, uh, what we were fighting for was was not that. It was independence. It was self determination. It was the true constitution, as they said. And I'm going to talk about that at the end of the of the, the last piece of the week. But um, Benner has some very good points to make about this, and essentially what it, what it boils down to. You know, the, the Hampton Roads Conference, if you don't know what it was, it was a, a last, well, it, was, it was a conference that was put together uh, to discuss peace. And some overtures were made to the South about ending the war. And, you know, Alexander H. Stevens was there, from, uh, from the Confederacy, the vice president of the Confederacy, who in fact was very good friends with uh, Abraham Lincoln. And so he was invited to this conference. Uh, Seward was there uh, for, the, for the North. Um, so was Lincoln. And um, also in attendance were Senator Robert M.T. Hunter of, of, uh, of the South and uh, Assistant Secretary of War John Campbell. And so they wanted to talk about what they could do to end the war. And the interesting thing about this is that we had already had uh, Sherman's March. Um, this wasn't something that was taking place uh, in 1862. Now, the South is already on the, on the brink of being defeated, but the war was not yet over. And so there was a discussion about how they could end the war in a different way. And so Benner concludes, which is, and as he goes through, again, a little concise history of what happened, he says, if we seek to eschew the notion that the entire history and heritage of the South is confined to a four-year period, the century-spanning cause of Southern independence should be elevated above and emphasized over petty attempts to demean it. By the traditional narrative, the South should have been willing to jump at the prospect of ending the war in return for the numerous concessions on slavery, but it didn't. By typical accounts, Confederate officials should have gladly abandoned their aspirations for independence to preserve human enslavement, but they didn't. According to most textbooks, Lincoln was more interested in abolition than the forceful suppression of secession, but he wasn't. In the standard tale, Lincoln and his cabinet adopted a newfound moral commitment against slavery that replaced all previous motives for waging a particularly bloody war, but they didn't. 
Ultimately, he says, the Confederacy was willing to reach a compromise with the North if Southern sovereignty and independence could not, un, I should say, unwilling to reach a compromise with the North if Southern sovereignty and independence could not be guaranteed. With these factors as their highest prerogatives, the Southern states were equally unwilling to waver from their initial position, which was independence first. They had to be recognized as independence. They weren't going to talk about anything else. While Lincoln attempted to appeal to Southern interests through slavery concessions, Stevens and the other Confederate delegates considered those matters minute in comparison to the highest objective. These men believed that Southern independence, decentralized government, and personal liberty were truly worth fighting for. Any feeble and dishonest attempt to substitute slavery in place of these maxims would pervert the true Jeffersonian tradition that the South adopted and cherished. So Lincoln had made overtures. Look, we'll let you keep slavery. This was discussed even before the war began. They had the Corwin Amendment on the table. All you got to do is just come back in. We'll make slavery permanent in the South. Stay in the Union. And the South didn't. So when Southerners said after the war, and they put on their monuments, and they said, look, we're fighting for the principles of 76. We're fighting for the spirit of the Constitution, the true Constitution. They thought the only way to preserve the Constitution was to leave the Union, what they considered to be the true Constitution. So above anything else, independence and self-determination was the highest order. And I often point out in Columbus, Georgia, there's a little tiny uh, Confederate monument there. And that's, a, and that's what it says on the monument. Look, they were fighting. And, and of course, con- Columbus, Georgia was home as, of the first Confederate Memorial Day in 1866. And the monument that was erected there, it's just an obelisk. But it says... Look, they're fighting for the idea of the sovereignty of the states, for the true principles of the Constitution. And this goes back, I mean, if you want to talk about what's wrong with America, essentially that's it. Everything we're dealing with, whether you're on the left or the right, comes down to the notion that the federal government cannot be checked in its power. And... We've subvert, subverted the, the nature of the Constitution. It used to be a bottom-up document where the states controlled just about everything in their own sphere of influence, and the general government had general powers for commerce and defense. Now we've gotten to a point where everything is top-down. And in, in the 20th century, I think the person that's most responsible for that and the way we look at federalism is Richard Nixon, because of his idea of what he called new federalism. And um, the states have become addicted to a federal cash drip. And so because of that, everything becomes a top-down, quote-unquote, national issue. Now, I mean, you can go back, of course, to Lincoln. You can go back to the war and explain how states' rights were lost. And once you lose states' rights, quote-unquote, states' rights, which is essentially just the states were the pillars of the document— Once you lose that, there is no checking the federal government. It is unlimited because it becomes the final arbiter of its own power. And once it decides what's constitutional, there's no no stopping it if the states don't have any authority to do so. Now, they've always had it. That's the dirty little secret. Nothing has changed in the Constitution. But states, because of this money, because they're slopping at the trough of federal money, are unwilling... 99.9% of the time to say no. And so that's what we're talking about in August. And this is the real Jeffersonian tradition, which is the American tradition. I mean, North, the North, 
you know, advocated this position for a long time as well. It's only the war that changed that. And so when people talk about what ails America, what's wrong with America, and they get upset at all these issues on the left and the right. I mean, you can look at a lot of issues that uh, people on the left get upset about when the, when the right is in power. All of these things could be handled by the states. And uh, back in 2012, when, when Mitt Romney was, was running for president, and he was being hit up over the head by Romney care because it's the same thing as Obamacare. It's really not. There is a substantial difference that Romney missed an opportunity to mention, and that is this. Romney care was perfectly constitutional in the state of Massachusetts because, according to the original Constitution, the states had complete control over that particular issue, which was the health and welfare of their people, of the state. And so if the people of Massachusetts wanted to have some type of socialized medicine system, they could have it in Massachusetts. The difference between Romney care and Obamacare is that Obamacare is completely unconstitutional because it tries to apply that same principle to the entire union. It's a one-size-fits-all policy for the union, which is unconstitutional. So there is the difference between the two. That was a golden opportunity to talk about federalism in the Jeffersonian tradition. We see this with uh, decriminalization of uh, marijuana in places like Colorado and Washington State. So the left enjoys essentially nullification. They're just saying, look, we don't care about your federal laws in favor of uh, making marijuana illegal. We're just going to decriminalize it here in, in Colorado and Washington State, and you can't do anything about it. Now, depending on who the next president is, that may not necessarily be true. If you listen to uh, people like Chris Christie, who, uh, he, when, when they were in the Republican debates, I mean, he, he openly talked about how he would enforce those laws again. So the Obama administration right now has chosen to ignore that. But the state essentially is thumbing its nose, and I'm not so certain that uh, it would be easy to coerce either one of those states anymore and enforcing that legislation. So uh, the states have said no, and that's the Jeffersonian tradition. Whether you agree with what the particular issue or not, I mean, this is what it comes down to. And so our conference is going to talk about you know, that particular idea from a legal standpoint and the mechanics of, of state interposition. And essentially, this is what the Hampton Roads Conference was all about, because the South was unwilling to come back in the Union with, at all. I mean, they just weren't going to do it, no matter what concessions were made. They could have promised, and they did promise in 1861, the North did through, the, through again, the Corwin Amendment, that slavery would be protected forever. And the South said, no, we're not going to be in a Union with you anymore because we want our independence. It's the same thing that the American colonies were saying in 1776. It doesn't matter what concessions are made. We've We've offered the olive branch over and over again, and it really doesn't matter what you say now. Independence becomes the highest ideal. It, all other issues are subordinate. And I think that's what we have to continually emphasize. Independence and the Jeffersonian idea of self-determination. That was the highest ideal that the South was fighting for. This is no lost cause theory. The record clearly indicates this. 
that the only way the South would discuss anything was from a standpoint of, okay, independence first. Then we'll talk about ending the war. You have to recognize us. And of course, Lincoln could not do that because he said secession was illegal. It never really happened. The states were in rebellion. They weren't actually legally out of the Union. So you get into that particular issue. Okay, so Tuesday we ran another great piece by Albert Taylor Bledsoe, and um, this is from his uh, magazine, the, the Southern Review. And it's a, it's a review of a book that came out in 1872 entitled Southern Voices Poems by William Holcomb. Now, William Holcomb is an interesting guy. He was actually a physician, a very prominent physician, in fact. And he's from the South, uh, but he also wrote poetry. So he was a real Renaissance man. I mean, this is something that I think in our modern education system that we lose sight of how important it was to be a well-rounded individual. Just because he practiced medicine didn't mean that he wasn't someone who was interested in literature. We think now that specialization means you can't do other things, or our hobbies have to be if you're a doctor playing golf, right? Uh, But here you have a man that was concerned about not only the physical being, but the soul as well. Because there was more to health than just the physical. There was also emotional and mental health. And one thing you can say is that poetry helps you become grounded. If you read a little poetry, it helps you become grounded in society. And so Holcomb loved to write poetry. And he did a very good job. And and essentially, this is what Bledsoe is pointing out. Um... He points out that the South was very creative, and America was very creative, but the South was just as creative as the North. In fact, maybe more so and better, because there was always this opinion that the South, and even Southerners, some Southerners said this, well, the South really is not going to produce any kind of great literary figures or artistic figures, uh, because of climate and geography and because of our economy, southern economy, it just won't happen. But Bledsoe points out this is not necessarily true. He says a temperate climate like the South is favorable to the production of artists and poets. And he points out several poets and artists who have come from similar climates in, in, uh, in Europe, Mediterranean climates. And he appeals to Southerners to remember this. He says, We have scarcely begun to recover from the terrible shock of the political and military struggle through which we have recently passed in this country. It is doubtful as yet whether we shall be able to save our government and our free institutions. God only knows the future, and from present appearances, we should tremble to lift the veil of the past and its memories of the skill of our generals and the gallantry of our soldiers displayed on many a battlefield. Nothing can deprive us He says the South is covered all over with vestiges of romance, 
which even the tread of the warrior, with garments dyed in blood, cannot obliterate. While the storm cloud darkens the political heavens, we may turn to the past for consolation, for agreeable and heroic reminiscences. If we are mortified with the changes that have come over the face of American society, if we despair of reform, when the flood tide of corruption is sweeping over the land with a continually accumulating force, if the present terrifies and alarms us with its prognostications and omens of worse times to come, we may still turn with pride and pleasure to the past. People who feel that they have been deeply wronged never remain stationary. They gather strength from their very afflictions. Their intellectual power is quickened by the passions that agitate and the griefs that assail them. And the mind, in its effort to extricate itself from impending difficulties, strains every nerve and strikes out new paths to distinction. So the deepest darkness precedes the dawn, and the blackest cloud covers the sun that shines behind it. The simile is an old one, but it inculcates a great lesson. Genius never sleeps when it sheds tears, but plumes itself for some lofty flight. This is the Southern tradition and the renewal of America. Bledsoe was writing this in 1872. And he's saying, look, things look really bad, but we have the past. We have the past. They can't take that from us. This is not some myth. This is what people thought. They still have what made the Southern tradition great. They still have the heroes. They still have the principles. And even when things are bad, history can serve as a warm blanket, as a refuge from the storm. Because even when it's so bad and it seems like the dark of the night will never subside, there is always light somewhere. This is a very Christian perspective, of course. That it's always darkest before the dawn. But the dawn will come. I don't know what Bledsoe would say about current society. I think we're, it's, it's gotten even worse than it was in 1872 in terms of things that are going on in American society today. But we still have the past. We still have the Southern tradition. And it can still offer people something, something to hold on to as we look around society, and I think that Southern tradition is taking care of hearth and home first, self-determination, taking care of family, small political communities, things of this nature. So we've mentioned that a lot on this podcast, and we've talked about it a lot on the website, but this is why this particular piece is so good. And I'm not going to read into to the, to the poems. It's, it's a wonderful... He, he, outlines a lot of things that uh, the poems that were published in this book that Hoekelm wrote. But uh, I think Bledsoe's position in this entire piece, that, that particular quote that I just read, and and the optimism that Bledsoe had, he concludes with saying, We are greatly indebted to Dr. Holcomb for this beautiful addition to the American poetry of the 19th century. 
that it is a contribution from the South by no means lessens its interest or diminishes its value in our eyes. We trust Voices of the South is but the precursor of its songs from the same poet. And this last line is important. It is prophetic of the renaissance of our literature and convinces us that, quote, there is a glorious life in the old land yet. That's the great thing about this piece. It's optimistic. Our summer school is optimistic. I think oftentimes Southerners get caught up in a very pessimistic position. And we spend all of our time fighting the onslaught, fighting the tide that's against us. And it's important to fight, but it's also important to be optimistic. Because if we can hold optimism, we can have a positive view. Then it's very hard to defeat that. A positive view about the Southern tradition. And everyone's going to point out, well, of course, the Southern tradition is just race and slavery. But we have so much more to point to and say, no, that's not it. And I'll talk about that position here in the last piece. That's not what we're trying to save. What we're trying to save is that Jeffersonian idea of self-determination, of limited self-government, of hearth and home. That's what we want to save because that's what can, quote, renew America. It's not nationalism, the top-down structure that's going to renew America. America cannot be renewed from the top down. America can't be renewed by electing the next president. America has to be renewed with the heart. America has to be renewed in your home and what you're willing to do and what you're willing to sacrifice at home and how much self-reliance you can have. The thing that allowed Southerners to secede in 1860 and 61 is they, they didn't need the general government. But so many of us need the general government for our livelihoods. And the, the Thursday piece you know, gets into that a little bit. So quickly, Wednesday's piece was the next installment in Clyde Wilson's saying by, Sayings by Four Southerners, part 32. So we've 32 installments in this, and it's great. Uh, he had a few uh, very good quotes in this that I think are worthy of note. Um, and uh, there's one quote from a man named Edwin Scott, who was an eyewitness of, to the sack and destruction of Columbia, South Carolina in 1865. He says, quote, If a transaction that occurred in the presence of 40 or 50,000 people can be successfully falsified, then all human testimony is worthless. So Sherman, of course, in the narrative about the sack and destruction of Columbia is that they're going to say it wasn't as bad as it was. And I mean, essentially, that's what came out of the North. It wasn't that bad. We didn't really do anything. Uh, you know, it was, uh, this was necessary. So if that, if that narrative can be pushed and people will believe it, even though there's 40 or 50,000 witnesses to the contrary, then all human testimony is worthless. There's no truth in history then. And you know that's if you go to Columbia, South Carolina today and you drive into the city, 
there's actually, one, for one of the bridges, there's a monument now to William Tecumseh Sherman in Columbia, South Carolina. This is how upside down we've gotten in history. I mean, the, it's, it's the Stockholm Syndrome. It's the people in South Carolina saying, well, I mean, you know, this is important to have this here. It's, I mean, that, that never would have happened until the last, say, decade. Never would have happened. But now there is a monument in honor of the sack and destruction of Columbia, South Carolina. Not, I mean, it's not necessarily a positive monument, saying that, but to even have a monument with Sherman on it, that would have been unheard of. Because people remembered. It wasn't just a, a black and white grainy photograph from the steps of the Capitol building. As everything looking from the Capitol building was burnt to the ground. It wasn't just that. I mean, that's, that's the enduring image of the burning and sack, you know, sack and burning of Columbia, South Carolina. It wasn't the statue of George Washington that was maliciously vandalized just because. It wasn't the pillars of Hampton's house that are now overgrown and uh, out in the, out, uh, just, just the pillars are all that's left. It wasn't that. It wasn't, it wasn't that because that's all we, that's all we have about the sack and destruction of Columbia. We have some pictures. We have evidence. We have stars on the side of the Capitol building showing where it was shot. And so we look back at that and say, wow, that's, that's interesting. Um, it wasn't that. To the people of South Carolina and the Columbia, South Carolina that went through it, it was real. It wasn't a picture. It was a memory ingrained in their mind, not of a black and white photograph of the aftermath, but the actual fires, the rape and pillage that took place, the murders that took place. To them, it was real. And they passed that on to their children and then to their grandchildren. But now we've forgotten. And now all it is is a black and white photograph. And in our search to be objective, because that is the noble dream of all historians to be objective, which it never happens. Many of us are open in our biases, but most of the historical profession is not. In our search to be objective, we give credence to the other side to a war crime. And that's what the sack and destruction of Columbia, South Carolina was. It was a war crime. Just like the sack and destruction of Columbus, Georgia was a war crime. That is what needs to be remembered. And because we don't have the living memories, as John Lukash has pointed out, history is the remembered past. Because we don't have the vivid memory in our own mind of actually seeing the event, the smoldering ruins, the death and destruction, the fear, tasting the fear because we don't have that any longer. It's just a black and white photograph for a people that the majority of the United States is now heaping contempt on. I mean, just look at what happened in the United States Congress. Now they're restricting on, on, on cemeteries 
battle flags and cemeteries for Confederate veteran soldiers you know, who had died in battle. You can no longer put, or at least they're going to restrict, how Confederate flags, battle flags, are displayed there. This is political correctness gone crazy. But because all it is is a black and white photograph, and to many, a rotten cause because they, they misunderstand, because secession to them is treason, well, and we've already talked about the flag and the misuse of the flag and everything that goes in with that. Because of that, now it doesn't matter anymore. This is why we exist. Just one small voice in the wilderness trying to say, hey, wait a second here, there's something valuable about this Southern tradition. There's something it can offer. Don't forget it. Because we've forgotten it for a long time, and look what's happened to the U.S. One other quote that I think was interesting, it says, quote, I've always had a contempt for Sheridan as a military hero because he acquired so much renown by accident rather than by courage and generalship. This is a Confederate veteran of the Cedar Creek battle, which is true. And he also points out a quote from a conservative pundit. Fact is, we need immigrants to take labor jobs so our children can attend college to learn about what horrible people our ancestors were. <laughs> I mean, this is what I was just talking about. This is, the, this is the opinion, the fashionable opinion now of America writ large. Not for everyone. On Thursday, we ran a piece, Thomas Jefferson versus Paul Krugman, Alec Greenspan et al. by Herrick Kimball. Now, this piece was actually written in 2008, and it was published on his great website, uh, The Deliberate Agrarian. Kimball is actually from New York. And uh, so this just goes to show, as I talked about a long time ago in this podcast, many, many episodes ago, that John Shelton Reed pointed this out in the 1980s, that it seems that the Southern tradition now is being carried forward in strange places like California, uh, the Greens, the agrarians out there, and the same thing here with Kimball from New York. Uh, they're carrying forward this agrarian tradition better than the South is. And in this particular case, I mean, Kimball, again, is from, from uh, New York, but he admires Jefferson. He admires the Southern tradition. He admires the South. And that's how he lives. And he talks about Jefferson as an economist. And, and he, he lists a large number of quotations from Jefferson um, he talks about uh, how the general position for mainstream e- economists today, Krugman and Greenspan, is that uh, all we have to do is print. Print our way out of it. Inflate. Uh, spend more money. Acquire more debt. He's talking about that was the last thing that Jefferson wanted. Kimball says, quote, Yes, Thomas Jefferson foresaw the problems we now have with unjust currencies and usurious banking practices. He warned against them. Our nation has strayed from from the wisdom of our founding fathers. We are now firmly in the clutches of a parasitic monster economic system that slowly but surely saps the economic vitality from its host. And as the system currently falters once again here in 2008, all the economic wizards of the world are working to fix it. 
Their fix will not address the systematic problems that Thomas Jefferson spoke about. Their fix will draw us deeper into debt and bondage. Their fix may likely trade a measure of American sovereignty by submitting to a new economic world order. And then he says, and so you may wonder, what's your point? Kimball says, my point is simply to educate, to show that the economic system we live under is fundamentally immoral. I'm not advocating for some solution. The solution, if it ever comes, will not be easy. America will not revert to the honest and constitutionally lawful economic default setting without very significant financial collapse and more than likely a violent revolution. That's what I think, and I don't see this happening in my lifetime. Kimball says, a lot has happened this past year. My friend was right. Those in the banking industry knew bad things were coming, but amazingly, Alan Greenspan was in a state of shock and disbelief when the economic crisis started to unfold. And he says, in 2008, a friend who was in, his, in the banking industry told him, quote, every speaker had a gloomy economic forecast. We are headed for a deep, dark recession for the next four to ten years and possible depression. So he's writing this in 2008. Here we are in 2016. What has happened, of course, in the last, and this is getting into economics, what's happened in the last eight years of the Obama administration is that the economy has been sort of propped up by spending. And this is, I mean, it happens. You can spend, and it'll prop up the economy. It helps prolong the inevitable, which is the crash that has to come. The economy has to find the bottom at some point. In fact, you might want to say that really what's happened, and this is not just now, but when the Great Depression took place in 1929, the economy never really found the bottom because at that point, the Hoover administration started trying to prop up the economy. And Roosevelt put it on steroids with the, with the New Deal, and we've never come off of that. We've been on a wartime economic footing, a national emergency, quote-unquote national emergency footing, which is what Roosevelt called it, since 1929, and definitely since 1933. And so the economy never really found the bottom. It never stabilized itself. It's always been propped up artificially. And this is what Jefferson worried about. This is really the heart of Jeffersonianism when it comes to economics. Jefferson uh, distrusted both big banks and big government. But, what he, but if you kept them separate, they could be managed. What he feared the most was a fusion of banking and finance and government. Because that created a, a, a monster that could not be tamed or subdued. And that's essentially what we have today. We have a fusion of these things. And it's very dangerous for the American people. And of course, Kimball being an independent small farmer. I mean, small farmers were crushed by this system. And one thing you know that's interesting about the government and, and farmers in general, uh, because of all the subsidies out there, what, what essentially happens is the American taxpayers hit twice because we subsidize farmers to grow co- crops and they get paid. They get paychecks for this. And then when they produce too much, the government buys back the surplus for things like food stamps. So essentially the taxpayers hit twice. We subsidize the farmers, which increases the price of products. And then when we have a social welfare system where we pay for people who don't meet a certain income to buy food, we're buying back the artificially inflated prices at higher prices, uh, products at higher prices for people that can't afford it. So taxpayers are getting hit twice. 
This squeezes the, the middle man, the taxpayer. The forgotten man, as William Graham Summer called them. So, I mean, it's really interesting how our economic system works and what we're doing. And the Jefferson, I mean, this is again the Jeffersonian tradition and or the quote unquote the Southern tradition and the renewal of America. Jefferson is the Southern tradition, the modern I mean, this is what we're talking about. And so Jefferson offers that view from an economic standpoint. This is what we could do to be better, to be better stewards of the economy. Hey, we gotta get out of debt. It's it's gotta happen. Because if it doesn't, we're doomed. So that's Jefferson's position as he mentioned over and over again. So Kimball does a great job. It's a nice little essay. has a lot of quotes from Jefferson himself. Highly worthwhile. And then on Friday, the last piece by uh, Bernard Thurzum, um, published at his circa 1865, but the title of the piece is Betrayed by Yankees Perverting the Constitution. And Bernard begins with, uh, the presidential messages of Jefferson Davis were filled with assertions of the South's legal right to secede and form a more perfect union and determine its own form of government to the letter of Jefferson's De- Declaration of Independence. Not losing sight of this, even in early 1865, one Confederate congressman stated that, quote, this is a war for the Constitution. It is a constitutional war. Wow. I mean, he didn't say this is a war for slavery. He said this is a war for the Constitution. And so Bernard actually quotes a mainstream historian, Drew Gilpin Faust. Now, those who don't know Drew Gilpin Faust, this is from a book entitled The Creation of Confederate Nationalism, published in 1988. And it's a short little book. It's an awful little book, but it shows several things. One, the only way to make it in history today is to be critical of the South. And Faust was that. In fact, what she basically says is that Southern... Southern nationalism, what she calls Confederate nationalism, was fabricated. There really wasn't anything to it. The South, in this four-year period, kind of made this up. And it was all based on one thing. And if, if I'll, I'll let you ponder that for a moment, but I'll give you a hint. It begins with an S and ends with a Y. That was the entire basis of Southern nationalism. Nothing else. Nothing else. Now, even a blind squirrel can find a nut because she gets into, in this particular book, a couple of things that are true. And so Bernie actually quotes this, this one section from the book. And so it's worth reading this one segment because this is, I mean, this is what Southerners were saying. This was only the beginning. If they couldn't have independence, this was only the beginning of what would happen in the future. Reform. So, she says, quote, Contributors to Confederate periodicals explored parallels between the Confederacy and other fledgling nations or independence movements, the Dutch Republic, the Young Kingdom of Italy, and the Polish and Greek rebellions. But the authors were careful to disassociate the South from genuinely radical movements. It was the conservative European nationalism of the post-1848 period with which the Confederacy could identify most enthusiastically. So if you know anything about European history, you had, the, you had of course, the French Revolution, then you had the Napoleonic period, then you had this other sweeping revolution of 1848, which was crushed 
by conservative governments. And a lot of these people, these disaffected revolutionaries, came over to the United States. They were Germans primarily, and they settled in the North. And they called themselves, or they were called, they didn't call themselves, but they were called the Red Republicans. They were communists who transplanted here, and they were ardent Republicans and Lincoln supporters. The South was undemocratic, the South was backwards, and it had to be punished and assimilated. Now, she didn't say that, but that's exactly what's going on here. Back to her quote. The Dutch struggled, an essayist in the July 1862 issue of the Southern Presbyterian Review explained approvingly, was like the Confederate, for in both situations, not we, but our foes are the revolutionists. The Daily Richmond Inquirer was even more explicit about the polls. Quote, There is nothing whatever in this movement of a revolutionary, radical, or red republican character. It is a natural, necessary protest and revolt of not a class or order, but an ancient and glorious nation against the crushing, killing union with another nationality and form of society. It is the aristocratic and high-bred national pride of Poland revolting against the coarse, brute power of Russian imperialism. At bottom, the cause of Poland is the same cause for which the Confederates are now fighting. Hmm, that's interesting. Like I said, even a blind squirrel can find a nut. I mean, Faust is pointing this out. Now, of course, Faust made a great career out of criticizing the South, and saying all this stuff is just hogwash. It's all lost cause, all made up. She now is president of a prestigious Ivy League institution. Thankfully, in one way, we don't have to hear her, her drivel any longer about the South. But again, if you want to be somebody in historical profession, you better criticize the South. Don't say anything positive about it. And to her, this is bad, right? <laughs> I mean, this is not something she likes. But the South is pointing this out. Hey, look, wait a second here. What we're doing is the same thing as these very conservative movements in Europe at the time. The the 19th century is the age of revolutions, or I should say uh, the age of centralization, uh, the age of imperialism, the age of nationalism, and of crushing independence. You had all these centralization movements in Europe. I mean, the most famous being the German unification movement, but also at Italy. You had uh, unification movements in South America and Brazil and Argentina, of course, here in the United States. Essentially at the heart, and what Lincoln said over and over again, was saying that secession was illegal. You can't do it. We have a top-down national government, quote-unquote national government, but as this particular piece points out, they're two nations. And so I think this is where Faust messes up. She really doesn't understand I mean, it seems to me that the true definition of nation. And so she continues, the southern government welcomed a Spanish analogy between Napoleon's invasion of Spain and northern advances across the Potomac. British recognition of the new Italian state encouraged Robert Toombs to see parallels there as well. Toombs says, quote, reasons no less grave and valid than those which actuated the people of Sicily and Naples, he explained, had promoted the Confederacy to seek its independence. This is what they were saying during the war, not afterwards when they're, when they're putting up monuments. This is what they're saying during the war. And then she continues, but the nationalist movement, and this is where I quibble with her term nationalist, but the nationalist movement with which the Confederates most frequently identified was the American War for Independence. That really wasn't a nationalist movement. 
And this is why I think Faust is incorrect in her assessment of what nationalism is. But that wasn't a nationalist movement. That was an independence movement. Not necessarily, I mean, the founding generation did use the word nation. There were several of them that did. But they also recognized deep differences between the North and the South even then. Even then. And there's plenty of evidence to that fact. But then she continues, a central contention of Confederate nationalism as it emerged in 1861 was the South's effort represented at a continuation of the struggle of 1776. This is completely true. The South, Confederates insisted, was the legitimate heir of American revolutionary tradition. Betrayed by Yankees who had perverted the true meaning of the Constitution, the revolutionary heritage could be preserved only by secession. Southerners portrayed their independence as the fulfillment of American nationalism. No, not nationalism but the American spirit of self-determination. This is, again, where I think she's incorrect in her use of the term nationalism. And so she continues, Secession represented continuity, not discontinuity. The Confederacy was the consummation, not the dissolution of the American dream. A sermon preached in South Carolina explained that, quote, the doctrines of the old Puritans, original Puritans, were and are the doctrines of the Bible, but the descendants of the Puritans have gone far astray from the creed of their forefathers. She continues, Southerners strive to avoid the dangerous isms, feminism, socialism, abolitionism that had emerged from northern efforts at social betterment. It wasn't just abolitionism, it was the other things too. Feminism, socialism. But the logic of a Confederate nationalism was to prescribe significant shifts in the Southern definition of Christian duty. Secession thus became an act of purification, a separation from the pollutions of decaying northern society that monstrous mass of moral disease as the Mobile Evening News so vividly described it. This is true. Southerners pointed out, look, this is just the beginning. I mean, this reform stuff will take over America. It's not going to stop it. This is progressivism, essentially. It's not going to stop with this one issue. And once they get that, they're going to want something else. And once they get that, they're going to want something else. The war was against progressivism, ultimately. Trying to preserve self-determination in the face of this tidal wave of progressivism that was going to start engulfing the entire United States. And it has. It has. We're living in the aftermath of that. We're living in the byproduct. It's taken a long time, but we're here. So when Bledsoe says in 1872, hey, look, we still have our history. Things look bad, but we still have our history. Southerners can take consolation in that because it offers something. The South is America. It offers something now as people are wrestling with what's going on and they can't figure it out. Well, it's there. It always has been there. It's just been swept under the rug or suppressed, but it's there. It's there. The Jeffersonian tradition is there. So I'd highly recommend that if you can attend one of this summer school in particular, it's going to be so good. And then our conference on nullification, which talks about this Jeffersonian tradition and how that can renew America today. I mean, that's essentially the same theme. The South is America. This is what we do. We try to have a very positive outlook. All these things are kind of depressing, but at the same time, you can look back at it and say, well, it's really not because the, the answer to everything is there. It's always been there. But you have to get people to start thinking this way. So I implore you, attend our conferences. Help us promote what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Help us. If you can, attend a conference. If you can't, donate. 
to us so we can keep these things going. It's all tax deductible. Please, not just for yourself, but for your future, for your children, for your grandchildren. We're still at the darkest point of the night. Contrary to what Bledsoe thought, it never got bright. It just continued. Now, I mean, you can say maybe there was periods where they could say there was a, uh, a reprieve, but we're still in that very dark point before the dawn, and we have to keep remembering what the Southern tradition really offers to America today. Don't let the other side confiscate what it is, which they're going to say it's all race and slavery. Don't let them do that. Because that's not it. That's not it at all. And your continued support will help us do that. Will help us preserve this Southern tradition. Until next time, good day.